The Streams of Winter, Live Stream 15, Sandor Clegane. Hello and welcome to The Streams of Winter. I'm Yoke Boy and we are Radio Westeros. Thanks so much for tuning in to our live stream this afternoon. Today we'll be talking about a character who doesn't have his own POV and yet is one of George's great secondary characters. He has suffered tremendously but might not be quite as ferocious as he appears. It's Sandor Clegane, everyone. Will Sandor appear in the next novel? And will he emerge as his old self or a character reborn? To help me answer these questions and more, here's the other half of Radio Westeros, Lady Gwyn. Yes, hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And, uh, you know, when we start these streams, I always say that I'm so excited to talk about these characters because I always am. I'm, I love all of George's characters, but I'm going to tell you that today I am so excited because Sandor is my favorite secondary character. And I'm really looking forward to a great discussion today. We have, we were just talking before we went live. We have so much to talk about. But first, let me introduce our guest returning uh, to help us out for this Sandor chat. We have Kyle from Blood of the Podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers to that, Lady Gwen. Yeah, really, really excited to talk about Sandor going through this. So very happy to be back. Yep, this is going to be a good discussion, everyone. So uh, buckle up. We got lots of Sandor. Uh, first, we want to uh, shout out several of our patrons have birthdays today. Many happy returns to Aegon the Sixth, who I know is there in the chat, uh, Crimson Kate, and also uh, to poor Quentin from Not A Cast Podcast. Happy birthday to all of you. I hope you have a great day. And a quick reminder of spoilers before we get started. We're going to be talking about books, possibly sample chapters, and occasionally making comparisons to the TV show, which uh, pretty much makes it spoilers everything. So time to get started. Over to you, yo, boy. Okay, so why don't we begin with some b background to build up the character of Sandor. Sandor's backstory is shocking and horrendous due to the brutal nature of his big brother, Gregor. The probable killing of members of Sandor's family isn't even the worst aspect of Sandor's youth. We learn that Sandor found Gregor's toy knight as a child and in response... Gregor melted his face on hot coals. The scars and fissures feature prominently on his face forever, but his emotional scars arguably cut just as deep. So what was George thinking when he decided to write Gregor as Sandor's brother? What sort of characters like this are defined by the giving and receiving of such cruelty? Lady Gwyn. Well, I want to say that there's a theme that comes up quite a few times in the story of, I guess, what we would call maybe wiser or older characters instructing some of our more innocent or starry-eyed characters about humanity's basic traits. For instance, when Bran insists that Hodor, and he's really talking about himself here, <laughs> likes stories where the knights kill the monsters, Mira Reed tells him, Sometimes the knights are the monsters, Bran. And much later, Thoros of Mere tells Brienne, war makes monsters of us all. This is a theme tying together uh, two things that 
George loves. He loves knights and he loves monsters, but he also loves inversions. And he's continually upping the ante with his human monsters. In fact, of humans who are specifically termed monsters, uh, we go from Joffrey tormenting Sansa escalates into Ramsay brutally torturing Theon. Gregor starts as a character out of a nightmare and then he becomes Robert Strong, a thousand times worse. Uh, and finally, the biggest monster of them all, Euron Crozai, becomes a king, giving him ever so much more power uh, to inflict pain and suffering. So even though uh, Gregor is the only one amongst these who's a knight, it's interesting that these men all have one peculiar thing in common, and that is the torment, torture, or murder of a sibling. When Joffrey terrorizes Tommen, Ramsay kills Domeric, or Euron kills and does unspeakable things to his brothers, and Gregor maims Sandor, they are all breaking a social contract or bond that's among the most essential that we have as humans, family something that we're born into. Generally speaking, breaking social bonds and contrasts, contracts is a huge theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. From Mad King Ares killing his bannermen to Tyrion killing Tywin. And George explores all of this through many lenses and none more thoroughly than through the lens of knighthood, as we'll be discussing here today. Yeah, in I mean, you bring up so many different points in that one thing. I think it can be easy for us to get like a bit inundated with George the Trope Smasher idea, right? I mean, how often do you see that on Twitter every single day? But the reason it's so often discussed is because George effortlessly is able to wield genre as a narrative device against itself. And his dissection of knighthood, as you said, within the fantasy genre is one of my personal favorite examples. Gregor is this blunt object with which the author uses to smash the fantasy trope of knighthood into a million little pieces. George is able to, George shows Sandor as a, as a little kid who still lives in that fantasy story, right? He wants to play with a toy knight, probably because that's what he wants to be when he grows up. A brave, strong knight who protects the innocent and defends the poor. It's no different from John shouting, I'm Amon the Dragon Knight, or Sansa wanting the world to be like the song she's always loved. But Gregor smashes that concept. He harms his younger brother in a truly despicable way for no reason. And what's his reward for this gift of cruelty? He's knighted. And by none other than the crowned prince Rhaegar Targaryen. To answer the second part of your question, with regards to what sort of characters are defined by giving and receiving of such cruelty, in this example, uh, I think the short answer is important characters. And by important, again, in this example, I mean characters who George can effectively use to twist and interrogate tropes in ways that force his audience and other characters to deal with deeper struggles. Last live stream I was on, we talked about how knighthood as a political system innately contradicts and corrupts knighthood as an ideology. And that's basically what Sandor's argument is. The system rewarded his abuser for his natural ability to be cruel. The songs aren't real. There is no mercy. It's all bullshit. After all of this incredible setup with Sandor, George now has a character primed and ready to collide with the worldviews of one of his leading ladies, Sansa Stark, which we will no doubt talk about in just a bit. Sandor and Gregor have an early showdown at the Hand's Tourney. 
So I wanted to know from you guys, what does this say about their personalities and their rivalry? Yeah, yeah, I think it's a really interesting one. Speculating as to what was going on through Sandor's head is is just that speculation, right? But we do know that Sandor is fighting defensively in this instant instance at the hands tourney. George particularly notes that Sandor is not striking at Gregor's head, despite the fact that he does does not have a helmet on and that Sandor has the opportunity to make those strikes. This would indicate that, at least right now, Sandor is not trying to harm Gregor. He's acting as a protector, protecting others from Gregor's rage. Yeah, I, I agree. For me, I'd say right here, George is giving us a clear message about Sandor in that scene. One Sandor himself would no doubt approve. He's not his brother. Early on, he's characterized as big, rough, spoken, scary, and very loyal to Joffrey guy. You know, he's Joffrey's sworn shield. He commits this unspeakable act uh, in Cersei's and Joffrey's name, which we'll talk about shortly. But here in this in this scene at the Hands Tourney, you get Ned, who's really an accomplished leader of men and a very observant person, noting that thing, what you referred to. He said it, at least three times he saw, quote, Sir Gregor aim savage blows at the hound's head helmet, but not once did Sandor send a cut at his brother's unprotected face. So for all that Sandor protested, I am no sir, to Sansa just the night before, he behaves like one in the hand's tourney. Ned sees it, and George pointedly shows us the contrast between his words to Sansa and his deeds in the lists, something that we as readers are no doubt supposed to make note of. For me, the early battle between Gregor and Sandor is the old trick of making a kind of early villain look a whole lot better by juxtaposing them against a far worse person. George does the same trick later with Jamie Lannister when he introduces the Bloody Mummers and they cut his hand off. And this makes Jamie look more human by, a com- by comparison. Gregor is the true monster, not Sandor. The notion is implanted into our brains. And it, it also could be part of a long-term setup between the brothers, which we'll discuss later. And... Again, early in the story, let's rewind. Before the hand's tourney, the hound is introduced as Joffrey's sworn sword, which paints him as this villain by way of association. When Arya and Nymeria have a run-in with Joffrey, the butcher's boy Micah is blamed. The hound is ordered to seek and destroy the young defenceless boy. He complies and mows down the boy, killing him. And on the surface remains decidedly cold about this slaughter. So what was George trying to tell us about Sandor's character here, Lady Gwynne? Well, I think there's two things that he'd like to convey to us. One is that that early characterization that we were talking about, that the Hound is this terrifying creature of the Lannisters. He frightens children. He threatens their pets. He even threatens... Tyrion back at Winterfell and early on he's always mentioned side by side with Joffrey so this murder of a child is the culmination of that thing 
which we've seen George do on a larger scale with Jamie, where we get that kind of bird's eye view and the public perception. And only later do we get to look behind the veil at the human being that is there. So the picture we get of Sandra Clegane early on isn't pretty. He's a killer, plain and simple. But after Micah, we get to see the hound away from his masters. And we start to learn that the man lives by a code that might not be chivalry exactly, but he's grounded in honesty and he is far deeper than anyone could have imagined. He has backstory. <laughs> by his own admission, he's a sword with a horse. He's a killer, but he he does not have the ribbons and the oils that knights use to disguise their murderous agendas. Uh, ergo, you know, he views himself as a much more honest person about you know who he is his identity and the great point that you bring up that george we see effectively wield gosh i mean if you really think about it so many times throughout the story is that idea of public perception right that he shows you what the public perception is and sometimes he tricks you into thinking that the public perception is the reality so that when you peek behind the veil it's a lot deeper than you thought and certainly with sandor he, he does that here and jamie again another great example but how interesting is it that one of, if not probably the most egregious thing that we see the Hound do is is when he's operating within the system of knighthood. He chases down and kills Micah under orders from his king, while Sandor's greatest deeds are almost always when he's specifically acting either against the system, like protecting Sansa, or of his own accord. Yeah, great points all around. And like we said, the Hound's... Tony was perhaps our first chance to reevaluate our early impressions of the man. So on the subject of Micah, just a simple question, because this is remains controversial in the fandom, lots of different points of views. Do we blame Sandor for that killing? Kyle? Yeah, I mean, you do have to. You know, we are going to... We're going to be heaping a lot of praise on Sandor here tonight, partly because he's he's misunderstood and partly because he really is a fascinating character. But uh, I do think it would be intellectually dishonest to not hold him accountable for such a thing. Your actions are things that you have to um, you know, own up to and, and be accountable for. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, everyone, everyone is responsible for their own self. Uh, and, and we have to hold him accountable the same way that we hold Jamie accountable for pushing Bran. I think that one thing worth mentioning is the context, uh, which we kind of alluded to already, but Cersei will have told her men, which includes Sandor as Joffrey's sworn shield, that the boy Micah attacked the crown prince. Now that, in the context of their medieval society, that is a death sentence, if it's true. And who was there to say it wasn't? Arya is off, run away. She's hiding. Sansa won't won't say or is just agreeing with everyone. She's certainly not defending her sister at this point. So I think it's interesting to me that in both of these instances, that the one I referenced with Jamie Bran and this San, Sanor and Micah, while the personal responsibility undoubtedly lies with the man who did the deeds, in large part, the moral responsibility lies with Cersei, perhaps even more so in the case of Micah and Sandor, because Sandor is beholden to Cersei as his employer in a way Jaime really isn't. And his job was explicitly the protection of Joffrey. So you're told, you know, oh, this kid attacked the crown prince. Well, 
you know, I mean, that's now you have to go do your job. And Cersei isn't the first royal in Westeros to condemn someone to death for threatening their royal son. I wanted to point out I'm looking at Aerys Targaryen and Brandon Stark. And this was kind of funny because this raised another Cersei and Aerys comparison for me, which I'd never thought of. So there's that. But in that case, we lay the blame squarely upon Ares. We don't sit here. I mean, obviously the pyromancer uh, that roasted Rickard and and the uh, how whatever they had this uh, device on Brandon. Obviously there were other people involved, but Ares has taken the blame there for that one. So, I mean, we could debate the moral implications of he was just following orders all day long. And believe me, when I was part of the Sandor Reread project over at Westeros.org, probably five years ago. Uh, we did debate that. It went on for days, not just all day, <laughs> days and days and days. But uh, so, you know, that's an interesting philosophical debate to have. But I just think that these are important details to know and distinctions to make. And then, you know, you can kind of take it from there to draw your conclusions and form your opinions. Well, as Lady Gwynne said, we can kind of argue the toss and bring in human rights precedents from our own eras to try and settle this debate. But keeping within the book, I do think that Sandor could have quite easily failed on purpose in the dastardly quest sanctioned by Cersei. So I think he holds an amount of responsibility and we have to be careful of absolving him if we hold other characters accountable for not standing up to their overlords when ordered to commit or be privy to horrendous acts. Okay, moving on. In spite of the early impression of villainy, the reader begins to kind of re-evaluate Sandor. When defenceless Sansa is the victim of Joffrey's hatred and bullying, Sandor displays kindness and refuses to join in. Then at the Blackwater, Sandor turns against Joffrey and offers to spirit Sansa away. He eventually makes her sing to him at knife point, and so the pair have quite a confusing relationship. Sansa thinks of him often and falsely remembers kissing him. So what are the takeaways about the dynamics these two characters share? Kyle. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of had a tough time deciding how I wanted to answer this question because there's just so much to unpack here and all those examples you mentioned. But what my mind kept going back to was the night of the hand's tourney, at the very end of the hand's tourney, when Sandor was escorting Sansa back to the castle. He screams at her, look at me, look at me. Then he bends down and forces her to look at his scarred face. Sandor once believed in the songs the same way Sansa does at this point. But his brother broke that belief and left him with the scar for proof. Sandor is forcing Sansa to stare into a face that quite literally represents the fact that the world is not always kind. That this world can be beyond cruel. Sandor begins to cry as he continues remembering how his father told everyone that his bedding had simply caught fire. And now... And how four years later, Gregor was then anointed by, as I said, none other than the Crown Prince Rhaegar Targaryen. It's Sansa's response to that that, in my opinion, represents really the crux of their entire relationship and narrative purpose. So just to read it quickly, Sandor, Sandor's rasping voice trailed off. He squatted silently before her. 
a hulking black shape, shrouded in the night, hidden from her eyes. Sansa could hear his ragged breathing. She was sad for him, she realized. Somehow, the fear had gone away. The silence went on and on, so long that she began to grow afraid once more. But she was afraid for him now, not for herself. She found his massive shoulder with her hand. He was no true knight, she whispered to him. Sansa's response to Sandor's story with San, Sansa does respond to Sandor's story with empathy, with kindness, with mercy. Sandor's tortured past has led him to believe that, you know what? Knighthood's bullshit. But Sansa responds with maybe what Sandor truly believes deep down in his heart. Gregor's not a true knight. He's always known it. But now, someone in the flesh in front of him is confirming what he's been what has been weighing on him all of these years. That he didn't deserve what happened to him. That he deserved protection just like anybody else. From a meta level, I think what George is saying is that the songs aren't real. They, they are veils that hide the reality of a world that can be cruel and uncaring. But isn't that all the more reason to unconditionally offer kindness, to be more understanding of others, and to give mercy without exception? Yes, I think so. <laughs> I think so. Uh, I'm going to go ahead here and um, make a couple of observations about some of the Arthurian themes in Sansa and Sandor's story because they fit well with the the scene that you just referred to. And um, I think this these these themes are very strong for me in Sansa and Sandor's arcs where they connect. There's a story in the Arthurian canon known as the Knight of the Cart, in which Queen Guinevere is, cap is kidnapped and Lancelot sets out to rescue her. Along the way, he comes across a cart, which in the story is is known or uh, understood to be a mode of transport that's not befitting a knight. In fact, it's something that use, that is used for criminals. But in order to save time, Lancelot accepts a ride in the cart and goes on to rescue the queen, returning her to her husband. But by most accounts, him mounting the cart uh, was not only abasing himself and in his knighthood, but it's an admission of his dangerous and frankly treasonous affection for Guinevere. Uh, and it's also a commentary on the nature of knighthood and the chivalric system in, in the context of when the story was written. So in that scene that Kyle was talking about, Sandor gets into a cart with Sansa and delivers her back to the Tower of the Hand. And I can never help but view that as an echo of this story of the Knight of the Cart. Those moments they share after the tourney say so much about the flaws of knights and going forward, Sons is able to mediate Sandor's feelings about knighthood in a number of unexpected ways. By accepting that he isn't a knight, she allows him to act as a knight for her. She becomes, in effect, his grail maiden, which is another Arthurian archetype. It's uh, someone that is possessed of the ability to offer healing and self-knowledge, while Sandor is the wounded king, which you might know as the Fisher King, if you've you know, ever studied Arthurian legends. It's, he's got to be healed in order for the realm to prosper. And this kind of relationship is going to climax during the Blackwater when she sings to him, and then he embarks on his journey of self-knowledge, or having gained self-knowledge through her intervention, uh, into the Riverlands, where he kind of finds himself, or finds himself on the quiet aisle anyway. So. Okay, some 
great Arthurian insight there. And very briefly, guys, I wanted to know from you, what exactly does Sandor, Sandor see in Sansa? And patron Quarren Harfand wonders if she reminds him of his dead sister, which is an interesting thought. So what, what do you think, Kyle? Yeah, that's a great point. I had never really considered that... Um considering his dead sister. So I think, yeah, certainly there could be slash maybe is that dynamic. I think Sandor also sees some of himself in the young girl, believe it or not. Sandor, as we've, we've already talked about, right. Was this kid who did in fact believe in the songs, just like Sansa. And in a way, I think he doesn't want Sansa to have the traumatic awakening to the real world that the way he did. So that's what I see in it. I think he sees himself in her. And Kyle, I think I really agree with you here. Purity, virtue, innocence, all the things he wanted to be before Gregor ruined him. Perhaps wanting to help the damsel in distress is an emotional artifact left over from those early days of his. Lady Gwen, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I do definitely agree that it's it's the innocence, the lost younger self that he responds to in Sansa, and that could definitely evoke memories of his sister. Although, to be honest, since we know so little about Sister Clegane, I would say that there's an equal chance that either Arya, skinny, mouthy little kid that she is, or sweet, innocent Sansa reminds him of her. I mean, we, we don't know enough about, we don't even know her name. Uh, to you know to really form that opinion but I definitely think that there is a strong possibility that one of these girls or both remind him of his sister him wanting to save them both oh yeah definitely I think the desire to do something that he couldn't do for his own family yeah I think so for sure I hadn't really ever considered that like I said but yeah he went through talk about other early trauma that's not really talked about as much the death of his young sister that's got to be baked in there so and remaining on the subject of Sansa, the Sansan idea of the shipping idea that they could form a relationship further in the books is appealing for many readers. I know numerous Sansans. Uh, shout out to all of you. And yeah, so what do you think, Kyle? What's the broader appeal of, of this relationship? Uh, yeah, I think it's appealing because I think the the tones that are there are purposeful by George. I, I couldn't see how they're not. And so for this relationship, just to say from the, from the start, obviously Sandor is thirty and Sansa is is fourteen at their, during the early books in three hundred AC. So let's not ignore that. But as far as the romantic tones that we do see, I think they're really a result of the fact that safety is an emotion very closely related to love. Because when you love someone. You want to do what you can to protect them. And this doesn't always have to be a black and white sense of, of a romantic love. I do kind of think it, I think those tones might be there. But what I mean is I have friends and family members who I love and thus want to be safe. With Sandor and Sansa, I really think what you're seeing is, specifically with Sandor, as I said earlier, despite what he was put through, I think it's safe to say no one before Sansa has ever really told him that he didn't deserve what happened to him. So now Sansa is in fact Sandor's emotional protector. She's the only one that has accepted him for who he is now. She, she has told him that he deserves mercy. Look at the song that she sings him, which 
also happens to be when she remembers the unkiss. Gentle mother, font of mercy, soothe the wrath and tame the fury. Teach us all a kinder way. Additionally, and correct me if, if you guys can think of another person, I think Sandor is the only individual outside of Sansa's direct family that ever protects her without exception. And by that I mean no personal agenda. We see the Lannisters and the Tyrells, certainly Baelish, protect her in certain instances, but none of them have any interest in Sansa outside of her last name and claim that are baked into the fact of who she is. So when you consider all of those things, I think you have two individuals who have found some form of comfort and safety in one another in a world that so often lacks those things or fails to show it at all. And I think that's largely where these romantic tones come through. What, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's very well said. Uh, they, I, they needed each other in those weeks and months in, in King's Landing. Neither of them had anyone else. And on a very basic level, everyone needs someone to be there for them. Uh, just for survival sake, especially in, in with what they were going through. I think it's just it's worth noting with regard to the age difference. And I've I've seen some discussion about this fairly recently that had their future relationship had or if, if they have a future relationship would have looked very different if George had kept the five year gap. So, you know, she would have be- become 18 going on 19, for instance. So that is uh, even setting aside the fact that younger girls and older men is fairly acceptable in the medieval uh, setting, even to our own standards, that would have been a lot more acceptable, right? So, but as as for why people respond to this, it's because it's a fairy tale, right? It's uh, the Beauty and the Beast. And I don't think I need to tell you that that is a tale as old as time. Yeah, I... I think I'm going to add on to what both of you have been talking about. George said, I've heard in an interview, that people come up to him and romanticise dangerous characters. I presume this is at least in part about Sandor. I think perhaps there's a contrast between the purity of Sansa and the roughness of Sandor that might be attractive for many people. The fact that Sandor is broken and shows glimmers of a soft soul wanting to improve also works in a romance setting. Like Lady Gwynne said, overall, the Beauty and the Beast dynamic is fully on display here. Okay, so there's some Sandor and Sansa. I want to move on. Sansa is not the only Stark to get to know Sandor. In the Riverlands, Sandor tangles with the BWB, faces his fiery fear in a trial by combat, and ends up kidnapping Arya. The pair function well together, but Arya struggles to forgive him for the Micah incident. He asks her for mercy following an ill-fated fight with the Tickler and co., but she can't decide if it's merciful to leave him or kill him and doesn't know what she'd rather do. So cognitive dissonance all round. So how do we assess this unlikely team of Aya and Sandor, Kyle? Yeah, it's it's quite interesting, isn't it? The way George really weaves Sandor in and out of this theme of mercy that the Starks and particularly the Stark women are so entrenched in from Sansa to Arya to Mother Merciless, Lady Stoneheart. 
would, would it have been merciful for Arya to to kill Sansa or to kill Sandor? <laughs> Those names are very close when you're talking about them <laughs> consistently. Uh, but yeah, this question of would it have been merciful for Arya to kill Sandor or was it mercy in letting him live? Did she let him live because she believed that to be mercy or because she couldn't bring herself to kill him? Quite honestly, I don't think this question's meant to have a black and white answer, but is instead meant for us to continue questioning what we think mercy truly is. In this way, I think Arya and Sandor function on page beautifully, especially because we're not done with this theme of mercy. Far from it. Uh, it, it figures to be, in my opinion, and I think most, a, a really potentially central theme in Winds, which I heard is coming out in just a matter of days. But... What what do you guys think? Do, do either of you have a particularly strong opinion on on whether or not Arya letting Sandor live was merciful or cruel? Well, I think Arya learned to give the gift of mercy from Sandor. He teaches her that during their time together in the Riverlands there. But she learned about justice and passing judgment from her father, who told Bran in A Game of Thrones, if you would take a man's life, you owe it to him to look into his eyes and hear his final words. And if you cannot bear to do that, then perhaps the man does not deserve to die. So in my opinion, letting Sandor live was a judgment of sorts. He was on her list, then he wasn't. She wanted to kill him, and then she didn't. And somewhere along the way, she realized that maybe he didn't really deserve to die. She couldn't look him in the eye and 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 kill him because she wasn't quite sure. So not, not by her hand anyways. He didn't deserve the gift of mercy, which is at once both a good thing and a bad thing. You know, it's sort of hard to tell what she, what, you know, which, which angle they're going at there. But the concept of judgment is something that Arya has utilized for vengeance in the Riverlands and something that she'll struggle with in Bravos, where it's really forbidden by her mentors. And Sandor Clegane represents the first time that when she was faced with an opportunity to pass judgment, to take vengeance, she let it go. And I think that's going to be important for her future development, as I don't think we've seen the last of this duo together. Uh, it could be that he has further lessons to teach her about the nature of vengeance and mercy. Yeah, that's such a, a great answer. You know, I, I asked that question in here and was curious what would come back from it, but the mixing that with the Northern justice and the ability to look them in their eyes and make that decision, and if you can't, maybe you don't, yeah, I mean, what a beautiful answer to that question that also has implications uh, that are going to come up in Winds and Dreams. So, yeah, I think that's a great answer. Yeah, great answers. And just to add on a tiny thing on the top, Aya and Sandor really have this kind of fuck the world attitude. They have to be survivors. With Gregor as your brother, Sandor learned early on that, you know, he has to do the things he has to do to survive and a harsh lesson that I has learned. So I think that's a good parallel between them. And I think if they had stayed together, you could have continued this story as a kind of mentor trope story and it could have gone on and on. But maybe, as Lady Gwynne said, they will come together later on. In these live streams, it's nice to be able to speculate on possibilities put forth by the show. One dynamic not on page was the fierce rivalry between two characters with much in common, 
Brienne and Sandor. So I'd like to know what are the parallels and differences between these two characters? Lady Gwyn, why don't you just start us off? Okay, well, I mean, let's start with their stature and later on their facial scarring. Jamie thinks of her as the hound with teats. <laughs> uh, they're both involved in an in-story pairing that has a Beauty and the Beast type parallel. And both are tormented by their differences in society, uh, though with very different external results. They're both closely intertwined with the fates of Sansa and Arya Stark. And that thing you just said about this kind of buddy, you know, mentor thing, I think there's a little bit of, uh, you know, Podrick, Arya, you know, those two, maybe a little bit of a parallel there. So. Yeah, like an unofficial squire. Okay, okay. what do you think, Kyle? Yeah, I think like we, we talked about with Brienne in the last stream, Sander is in so many ways kind of rejected by the society he exists in. I'd say less than Brienne, but he still certainly doesn't fit in, right? And each character's disunion within society gives really great narrative weight to their plot beats that, that really stand out in the story and is why they're fan favorites. Excellent. So I wanted to delve deeper into parallels between them and shared themes, really. So now, Kyle, why don't you compare their view views and histories on the theme of knighthood such a strong theme for both of them yeah very strong theme certainly neither one being you know a knight of course which makes it all the more interesting um with that i think what's interesting is both of them serve as a member of a king's guard sandor for king joffrey and brienne for king claimant renly as non-knights i think as far as their views on knighthood uh, I don't think it's so unsimilar to Jamie and Brienne's relationship. I think Sandor does think that true knighthood is the knighthood he likely believed in when he was a child. However, where Jamie's disillusionment comes when he's an adult, Sandor's goes through goes through this trauma at a very young age. So he comes out quite a lot more raw and rough around the edges. He's been disillusioned with this concept for decades. While these two are very, very different, Brienne and Sandor, I think the audience is supposed to and does see both of them as some of the truest knights in the series. And, and why is that, right? I think it's because we, the audience, still believe in the fantasy trope of what a true knight is supposed to be. Someone who protects those who cannot protect themselves. And not only that, but, but does so when it's not convenient for them. Like Sandor serving as a protector for Sansa in King's Landing, or Brienne refusing to give up her search for Sansa. We, the audience, so badly want to believe in the trope that we'll latch on to whatever inklings of true valor the author will hand us. And it just so happens some of the truest we get is through Brienne and Sandor. Yeah, and as Kyle said earlier, this all began with the toy knight. I think it can clearly be seen as a symbol of Sandor's ambition and his early hobby. And so his long-term trauma is inextricably linked to the knighthood tradition. Seeing Gregor later knighted, again, Carl's been over this, and by Prince Rhaegar, which I'm dying to know a lot more about, it must have really shattered his sort of worldview and led directly to into his disdain towards knighthood. However, as we continue forward, we see that perhaps his rejection 
of the institution does not necessarily mean he's permanently forsaken all the moral aspirations expected of a knight. Here is a man who is capable of doing wrongs instead of rights, but does not confuse them in his heart, which means there's good hope for improvement. Brienne is far purer, and whereas Sandor turns away from knighthood, Brienne is refused it, so they are sailing on similar themes there. Both are capable of great things, and I hope we see that going forward. But we started this Brienne section by talking about the show, and in the show, the pair had an epic one-on-one -on -one fight across rolling moorland. So, will they fight like on the show, Kyle? I personally don't think so, and I love this scene in the show, so I'm really not not ragging on it. It was a great uh, addition, I thought, but... In the show, the Brienne Sandor fight scene is where Sandor sustains the injuries that send him to the Quiet Idol, whereas in the novels, he has already sustained those injuries and seems to be, at least to some degree, crippled. It's hard to imagine that he could now put up a fight against Brienne in his currently crippled state. Now, you know, perhaps Brienne is grievously injured uh, during her Lady Stoneheart encounter or, or something like this. But short answer, I really don't see them fighting one another in the novels. However, I mean, I, I could be wrong. What do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, I don't think so either, really. I think you hit the nail on the head in that the show used Brienne and Sandor's fight as a bridge to get Sandor to what counted as the Quiet Isle. Since, I mean, since there was so much changed and deleted from the Riverland story, you know, in my opinion, it really all hinges on the lack of Stoneheart. Without her, there's no dramatic climax to Brienne's Riverlands arc, or at least a climax as far as we've gotten, right? So, and so, enter Sandor. Uh, that That is what took the place of this dramatic thing that allowed her to conclude that part and then move on. On the flip side, without Lady Stoneheart, the Brotherhood without banners kind of they're just kind of floating. They they need a raison d'etre. They so again, here comes Sandor, and they eventually, you know, all buddy up and move north. So basically, I think that they use that fight to, you know, create some connections and wrap up some Riverlands loose ends that really just had to be wrapped up before getting both of those characters north where they needed to be to continue their association with the Starks, in which to be honest, at some point in, you know, in the future is exactly where I expect they will both end up. All the other stuff that could could happen with both of them aside. I just think that's kind of where they're heading. Yeah. And to give the show some credit too, what's nice about that scene is we get some actual dialogue from Sandor where he, Brienne questions his intentions, you know, what are you doing with any... Anyway, it's, it's said that he's protecting her, right? And that's what you're doing, protecting her. And he says, yes. And sure, it's maybe a little like nail on the head, right? But, you know, you like to see that. I like to see that because that's what we're talking about with Sandor as a protector anyway. So there's that part of the scene that I really do think works in the show the way that it just happened to occur. But it's not going to happen in the novels. So I, I must agree with you both. A lot of things I see on the show, I kind of assess... How difficult would it have been to kind of maneuver this new material in amongst all the overlapping stuff that's going on? And some things are just too big for that, you know. Sometimes I think they can't have reimagined that and just slotted it in like they did. But something like this fight, 
I think this this scene they could have s- slotted in quite easily. So yeah, I agree with you two there. And you mentioned the Quiet Isle, Lady Gwyn. After going AWOL from our pages, following his encounter with Aya, a strange figure is seen by Brienne at the Quiet Isle retreat. Many fans, probably 99.9% of them, are convinced that this gravedigger is Sandor and that he could be undergoing some sort of spiritual rebirth or at least trying to do so. So what evidence is there that this guy is Sandor Clegane and is it convincing? What do you think, Kyle? Yes. <laughs> and I think uh, I think most people feel this way. It's very convincing. I think the Gravedigger theory is as confirmed as any theory we have in the novels. Most people are, are pretty familiar with it, but just to go through some of the basic evidence briefly, all of which essentially comes from Brienne 6, A Feast for Crows. Brienne arrives at the Quiet Isle with Septon Maribald. Upon their arrival, one of the first things they walk past is the stables, in which there is a huge black stallion that kicked at the door of his stall. Isle Hunt stops and calls it a handsome beast, and the acolytes go on to describe the horse, named Driftwood. Uh, It's ill-tempered, it's a burdened beast, it's uh, broken somebody's leg, it's bitten somebody's ear. There's a lot of description to a random horse. It's like a whole paragraph of description to a horse that, you know, now it's like the Chekhov's horse, basically. But um, they continue walking, uh, and in the very next paragraph, they pass a lichyard where a big brother, a brother bigger than Brienne, was struggling to dig a grave. From the way he moved, it was plain to see that he was lame. Then, in the very next sentence, Septon Maribald's dog, named Dog, goes up to sniff the man as he drops his spade and scratches his ear. So right there, clearly, this is the one, two, three, foreshadowing reveal approach that George so fancies. Um, We see a horse that both resembles and is characterized just like Sandor's horse Stranger. We see a large man who appears to be lame. We know Sandor is a very large man. And at the last time we saw him, he was badly wounded. And then George has the suspiciously large lame man petting a dog, House Clegane's sigil, behind the ear. And it doesn't even end here in this chapter. It's, of course, later revealed in the same chapter, Brienne 6, that the horse is, in fact, Sandor's horse, and that the elder brother had come across the hound because he, the elder brother, buried the hound himself. The elder brother also seems to know an awful lot, a suspiciously um, a suspiciously large amount of information about Sandor, who he was traveling with, his intentions, etc., Not only does this evidence all fit, but the way it's written just drips with George's fingerprints. We have the 123 reveal. We have the elder brother referring to the hound's metaphysical death or metaphorical death. I mean, it's great writing, but it's got George's fingerprints all over it for people who look at it as much as we do. So what do you guys think? Yes. I mean, um, if you're in the 0.1% that Yoke Boy (laughs) mentioned (laughs) who don't accept uh, the grave digger is the hound. Then I'm very sorry that we're doing an entire live stream <laughs> about a dead guy. But but I accept it 100% as canon. I think it's the only theory that is as nailed on or nearly as nailed on as R plus L equals J. So uh, the hound is dead. Sandra Clegane is at rest. Yay. So, but it's worth noting that just like 
uh, RLJ, it's highly likely that George never anticipated the intention and dissection of text that would result from fan forums and the intense analysis that goes on in our fandom here. I think most casual readers probably don't get this on the first read. Yeah, doesn't help George at all that he had 10 years to look over because that whole <laughs> section I read is, I mean, I basically read all of it. It's only like it takes place in basically about half a page, but yeah, it sticks out when you have 10 years to reread the book. Yeah, when times, you're huh? just <laughs> on your multiple reread, you're like, um, mm, yeah, oh, this is suspicious. Yeah. Even if you're not in fan forums and having other people spell it out for you, um, multiple rereads are going to lead you here. But uh, yeah, yeah, I think the first time around, probably most of us kind of breezed over that and Oh, sure. Yeah. About it later. So, yeah. Yep. Okay. So, we portrayed Sandor as someone that suffered a lot of trauma and conflict early in his life. So, what do we make of this part of his arc where he finds peace, to put it plainly? Lady Gwyn. Well, I guess it comes down to whether you see Sandor's arc as transformative or simply growth based. Has he or is he going to gain some knowledge that radically alters who he is as a character? Or is he simply improving himself while remaining essentially the same? That's, you know, there's a difference of two different kinds of character arcs. In either case, I guess the Quiet Isle would function as a fulcrum in his arc. It's kind of, you know, the, the in-between place. But uh, since there are many things that I don't expect to change about him... I, I think, in my opinion, we're dealing with a growth arc, growth which occurred over a period of time in which he is now grappling with and coming to terms with during this time of peace or retirement at the Quiet Isle. I think that's very well said, Lady Gwyn. I do, like, I love seeing Sandor get to find some peace, even if that peace is being used as as a fulcrum for events to come, which I, I do really agree with. I don't what I also agree with is I don't think that we can expect Sandor to be this fundamentally different changed character the next time that we see him, which we, I guess we do expect to see him again. Um, like, I think we're still going to recognize him as a character, but perhaps he's going to be like just a little bit smoother around the edges compared to the rough guy we saw at the beginning. He's just going to be, you know, a little bit more more smooth than than at that point. So a smoother Sandor. Smooth Sandor. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I wish we had some smooth jazz or something to cue up. And <laughs> He's going to be chilling out somewhere on, in the pages of Winds of Winter. Okay, let's move more into speculation territory. I think a lot of you enjoy this. So as we consider the Winds of Winter, and Sandor as the gravedigger holds appeal because the reader really develops a soft spot for the big man. And we do get sick of the poor guy suffering. So do we see his newfound peace lasting? Lady Gwyn. No, I do not, sadly. Uh, except, I mean, maybe his inner peace might last. Maybe he's going to find some blissful center that will... You know that maybe that's his growth, and that's that's the the uh, development that we see in his character that he kind of uh, gets becomes Zen Sandor. I, I don't know, <laughs> but, but basically we, we can't forget that this is Westeros uh, outer peace. 
not only does it last, it barely exists anymore. So it's like the minute he leaves the Quiet Isle, which, uh, you know, we'll be talking about ways that that's going to happen, but I think we all expect that it will happen. Peace will be over. Yeah. I mean, we kind of all know where Westeros is, is heading towards, and it doesn't feel like re-entering it would push anybody towards continued peace. And in preparation for this episode, I was, you know, of course, going through this question and thinking about it a lot. And here's where I landed at. The term, so the Hound is a a main off-screen character, probably the main off-screen character for A Feast for Crows. The Hound as a proper name is mentioned 46 times in A Feast for Crows. To give context, Daenerys, another, of course, off-screen main character in this novel, is mentioned five times. It drives the story, right, of finding, of course, you know, it's not Sandor, but the Hound is a main character in this novel. Then you have Brienne's travel to the Quiet Isle. The main narrative purpose of Brienne coming to the Quiet Isle is that she learns of the Hound's reported death. George goes through the trouble of writing the Hound's metaphorical death while also having Sandor being secretly alive, which has also now created a Chekhov's gravedigger situation. Considering all of that narrative tension, it it just doesn't really even seem possible that George is done with Sandor. There's too much work that's been put, put into him at this point. Yeah, he's definitely a character defined by conflict, and conflict makes good drama. So I'd be surprised if Sandor veers away from that, given he's capable of creating such great scenes with his stature and his kind of no-bullshit attitude. I don't know if a peaceful Sandor would really work on our pages, and I think George would be well aware of that. So if he does move move on from the Quiet Isle, how and if at all do we think his character and temperament will have changed moving through the winds of winter and beyond? Well, as I mentioned, I think we're dealing with a growth arc and Sander is going to retain his essential personality, but he's going to experience some kind of personal growth to the extent that he might fully realize some of the promise of his youth or, or maybe, you know, ways that he could somehow still fulfill some of those early hopes and dreams. And the tantalizing hints we see at the hands tourney and then his numerous protections of Sansa and then his travels with Arya that he can be a better person when he lets go of the facade he's chosen to show the world for so long really, really do kind of lead us into that, that conclusion or or that kind of next step for him. Yeah. And I mean, as I said, I I don't think we're going to see a fundamentally changed Sandor is we're going to see smooth Sandor, right? That's what now I'm really hoping for this smooth (laughs) Sandor. I'm into, into it now, but um, what's interesting is I think Brienne's visit to the Quiet Isle could be the event that maybe spurs him on to look for Arya and or Sansa himself. You know, we've seen Jamie and especially Brienne have this commitment towards continuing to look for the Stark girls. Maybe Sandor seeing and, and hearing about Brienne still looking for Sansa will make Sandor, who her perhaps has a different perspective on life now, or at least a, a tweaked perspective on life, want to join Brienne's journey or at least set out on his own to to look for these girls that I think he can recognize he served as a protector for. So it could that could be a flashpoint we look back to and say, wow, you know, that changed everything, the fact that Brienne stumbled upon the Quiet Isle. 
And there's just so much story left, guys, isn't there? I'm suspicious that Sandor has found this piece relatively early. And there's still plenty of pages left for that to change. So perhaps this indicates that there's plenty of time to, for him to fall off again. And perhaps he'll at least have an improved temperament after the Quiet Isle. Well, I don't think he'll be a Zen master going forward. I do want to recognise some amount of positive change, at least, in his character. And earlier we discussed Sansa, the speculation of romance by some, or many, the meaning of the unkiss, and so on. So Patron May wonders what are our takes on whether he will meet Sansa again, and if so, do we have any idea in what context that will be and what could happen? Lady Gwyn. Yeah, I do. I mean, basically, I I think I've hinted that or suggested that I, I've always thought he, he's going to leave the Quiet Isle with some altruistic purpose in mind. And I suppose one option for that would be some sort of demonstrated need on Sansa's part, since he already knew she fled after the purple wedding i don't think it's enough for him to know that she's out there somewhere and people are searching for her i think you'd have to have some kind of certain knowledge of you know that that she's in need um but you know that's not the only option but uh that's i think that's one that's a very probable option yeah it certainly could be and yeah i agree earlier i mentioned how sandor and sansa in certain ways were both captives in king's landing Sandor's was perhaps a more metaphysical prison, right, within the identity of the Hound. But um, there is resonance between these characters that seems ripe for the picking for George. And when you can see that narrative tension as the reader, the author is more than aware of it. And I don't know to what extent George is going to utilize these two characters together, but there's got to be a point in which these arcs collide again because it's not going to take much even a small conversation between these characters with the weight that we have behind them would be earth shattering from in the narrative within the narrative so yeah that's where i stand on i guess well we will see uh when winds comes out in a matter of days <laughs> <laughs> and talking about stories and characters colliding aya left sandor for dead and proved how independent she can be by the time she returns to Westeros, she will have matured and changed. Patron Christine wonders, what will Aya think of Sandor if she realises he's alive? How could they meet? And what would she have to say to him? Lady Gwyn? Well, like I said earlier, I definitely think there is more to come between these two. And not just because the show gave us more to come between these two. <laughs> I've always felt that that's sort of, you know almost more than Sansa and Sandor uh, that there's some unfinished business with Arya and Sandor. That's just me. Uh, but her, her realizing that Sandor had survived would actually be the second time in her experience that the gods had judged him and found him worthy of life and maybe even exonerated him. And I'm nearly certain that Arya, especially a, you know, a mature and changed Arya, uh, would be respectful of that. Yeah, that's a, I, I never really considered that. But I, yeah, I think that's a great point that 
you know, hey, he must ha- maybe have a purpose. I think Arya would see that to some extent, at least. Um, and Arya, gosh, not to do a whole episode over Arya or anything, but what a fascinating character is to what she's going to look like when she comes back to Westeros, right? We have these two characters in Sandor and Arya who, for all intents and purposes, have been removed from the game board of Westeros who are likely going to be re-entering it and potentially uh, meeting one another. I also wonder if, depending on the Arya we get in the future, which could be uh, numerous different numbers of arias you know or we'll see where she's at in in her life arc if you will um but i wonder if maybe sandor could be a person who soothes the rage and tames the fury for Arya, who's now a, you know going to be a fully trained assassin with vengeance on her heart with the horrible things that have come to her family maybe she's going to be needed pulled back to uh, compassion and to mercy maybe sandor is a a person who could provide that for her that would be very narratively strong yeah, Sandor might end up being a sort of diagram of what could go wrong for Arya, you know. She could look to mm-hmm. the the turns that he takes and think that that could have been me if I'd continued with my list or whatever. But yeah, we'll discuss more of Sandor's fate as we go on. And patron Eric wonders what we think of the Hound's Helm and its journey. What will be its significance? show you my hands <laughs> sitting over my shoulder here got one got one right here just for the conversation for podcast listeners lady gwen is holding up all the hound toys that she's hoards lady gwen has hound toys galore okay uh, <laughs> all right moving on the helm represents broken men my opinion and i think thoros says it best in this pat in this exchange uh with lem lemon cloak says there's nothing good about that helm nor the men who wore it sander clegane was a man in torment and rorge a beast in human skin lem responds i'm not them then why show the world their face savage snarling twisted is that who you would be lem the sight of it will make my foes afraid, says Lem. The sight of it makes me afraid, says Thoros. I think this, combined with Thoros in that same Brienne chapter, mourning for the loss of mercy and kindness in his brotherhood, and that theme of broken men in the Riverlands, which is first elucidated at the Quiet Isle, it makes me think that at least one more man who wears that helm is going to break or perhaps has already broken. And in that case, I think it's going to be RIP Lem Lemoncloak, which makes me sad. Poor Lem. No, gosh, I think that's a great point. And I should have meant something I said earlier where, um, you know, it's not Sandor who's a a main feature off-screen character of A Feast for Crows. It's it's the Hound, right? It's a concept. It's, It's broken men. That's a theme for the book, certainly. And the Hound is, as we learn, of course, as rereaders and people who have read many times, that that helm is worn by multiple different people throughout throughout that novel and, and horrible acts are committed while wearing that helm. It's, it's the skin that's being worn, not necessarily Sandor. So I absolutely agree that that's what it, what it represents. And I kind of think George is going to continue to implement um, the helm where he wants to hammer away that concept because it's a strong concept. Clearly he made it one of the focal points of the fourth novel. So um, maybe I, what I would love to see, I guess on the speculation side of it would be 
if we see somebody maybe cast it aside in the future to show a break from those life choices, I could see that as poignant, but I, I totally agree with your assessment on what it represents. And I just thought of a take. It might be terrible, but does it remind you of the mask with Jim Carrey? <laughs> Some kind of confidence building, like cursed, cursed um, thing that people wear and turn into other people. But anyway, patron Pearl of the Orient wonders how Sandor will be reintroduced and if he will survive the Winds of Winter. I think I'll go for this one. I think Sandor will survive Tiwau and I expect him to play a role against the others in the final novel. This is another reason why I think Sandor can't veer away from conflict because you expect him to stand up against the others. And it's difficult to say what lies before that for Sandor. And perhaps without a POV, we will just hear sort of tales about him, sightings and so on for some of that. It'll be interesting if he absconds from the Quiet Isle because he might have to turn to petty crime in order just to survive and that perhaps could re-corrupt him although as I said I'm hoping for a better Sandor in the long term and another possible reunion is with the character we began the show talking about his good old big brother Gregor the pair's hatred of each other is innate and unrivaled. They are extremely large men built to be warriors. The fandom has expected so-called Clegane Bowl to happen for many years now, although it seems that this occurring at Cersei's trial could be wide of the mark. So do we think these two having one final massive showdown to the death is their destiny from the very beginning? And I'll begin. As to the sibling rivalry, the show portrayed an apocalyptic scene where the brothers were fighting with King's Landing burning in the background. Wasn't that awesome? Sandor kills Gregor but has to sacrifice himself to do so. This is certainly a bittersweet moment which fits George's style and it comments on the inevitability of taking revenge. The scene tied layers of meaning together very well and it was also spectacular and would be awesome to read on page. Therefore, it's very difficult for me to imagine they made all of this up and slotted it in the story. I talked about this earlier. I think this is a plot point where you're like, this has to be from George. It's just so juicy. Imagine it on page. You know, could could the showrunners really have just imagined this? It's, it sounds like a, a George plot point to me. What do you think, Lady Wynn? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's unfinished business between the two brothers. But it, since I like to think that something altruistic, you know, influences him out of his seclusion similar to how he was revealed to be different than what we originally thought of him at the hands tourney and beyond. I, I like to think that maybe one of the possibilities for him leaving the quiet aisle has to do with Robert Strong, although it would function just as well if it happens, you know, much later on, like 
kind of we saw in the show more like at the end of the story. Uh, either way, I think whatever growth he's experienced at his arc and at the Quiet Isle is unlikely to leave him with that same consuming hatred of his brother that he once had. I, I think that's part of his development is that he's learning to let go of that because, look, hatred is a very toxic emotion. It's toxic more to the person that feels it than to the person who's the object of it, right? So I, I think the whole point of what the elder brother tells Brienne is that, you know, he, he says, Sander Clegane dreamed of slaying his own brother, a sin so terrible it makes me shudder just to speak of it. Yet that was the bread that nourished him, the fuel that kept his fires burning. Ignoble as it was, the hope of seeing his brother's blood upon his blade was all this sad and angry creature lived for, and even that was taken for him when Prince Oberyn of Dorne stabbed Sir Gregor with a poisoned spear. So I don't think it's discussed often enough when we talk about Clegane Bowl that at this point, Sandor is going to think Gregor is dead. So he's there on the Quiet Isle, and for all he knows... Uh, you know, he's been robbed of, of the thing that he hoped to do his whole life as somebody else has come along and killed his brother. So, um, but what happens when Sandor, having come to terms with his brother's life and his death, finds out about Robert Strong? I mean, we talked a couple weeks ago about the, you know, the, the Sand Snakes and how they're not going to be fooled for a split second as to the true identity of Robert Strong. And I, I don't think that Sandor Clegane is going to, uh, be miss out on that either. So is, is that going to be the thing that makes him emerge from the quiet aisle just to, to save someone or some people from his brother, the way he did for Loras Tyrell in a game of Thrones, simply because he's literally the only one who can stand against him. I mean, the only one who physically has the stature to, to do it. Uh, or, you know, is it just too late for Sandor? Is he doomed to um, just go down in a blaze of glory with his brother, like the show seemed to suggest. Yeah. So to throw out my prepared answer, because, because I'm more interested in some of the things you said, no one can stand against him. Right. Is like this, like Gregor phrase, right? Mm -hmm. No one can stand mm -hmm. against him. That's something we, we always hear. I, like, man, hmm, I wonder if there's some really specific narrative tension to that being Sandor, right? Like it's a challenge. Like nobody could do it. Nobody could do it. Maybe the singular character who could do it, and is supposed to do it is Sandor. I wonder if like that's rattled around in George's head. Mm. Um, you know mm. what I mean? It, it sounds like maybe it's a challenge to Sandor. I, I don't. We'll see. Yeah. But that's why well, I thought it's funny because I just I'll interrupt you to say that the first time that's said is is when is Sansa says it to Sandor after day one of the Hound's tourney. She says none could stand against him, and Sandor is kind of like, uh, yeah, right. Uh, none could stand against him. But then the very next day. He did. He was the one who stood against him. So, oh my gosh, I love yeah. that. I can't even say how much I love yes, that. Yes, <laughs> I do too. So. Um, <laughs> yeah. So now that's a part. That's that's now canon. Uh, <laughs> that's what that's referring to. But it really could be. So you, we'll see where we get to with that. What I would say with this build up to Clegane Bowl, it reminds me a lot of Jamie dealing with Cersei. Right. We we root for Jamie. We want him to. Uh, emerge from this as a fully reformed villain, if you will. But we kind of know that it's going to end with him dealing with Cersei in some way. And, and how does that leave you feeling about that character, right? 
And with Sandor, I think it's similar where even if he's been reformed and he's more at peace, he's going to have to deal with Gregor. Now, of course, Gregor's also this evil, you know, Frankenstein monster, whatever you want to say. But my hope is that, and somebody mentioned it here, that it's going to be Greg or Sandor protecting somebody from Gregor, right? That's got a little bit of a more positive side to it than him seeking revenge on his brother. But at the same time, you're still, you still would be having revenge play a factor into it. So I kind of see it as this funnel. He's going down this very similar to, to Jamie and, and Cersei. Yeah. Excellent. And I, I just was taken back by something Lady Gwynne said that hatred is more poisonous for the beholder than it is for the object of that hatred. And I think if I could summarize Sandor Clegane into one sentence, that would be it. The, the lesson of his whole story, I think that, you know, if he does take on Gregor, then that, that could be his whole kind of slogan. Okay, let's get on to the final question. And there's many monikers and themes of identity woven into the pages and characters of A Song of Ice and Fire. We know the Hound and Sandor are the same person in one sense. But is the implication that the two identities are in fact very different? If so, what are the crucial differences between the Hound and and Sandor. Kyle. Yeah, I mean, like I like I said earlier, right? Sandor, the Hound, serves as a main character in A Feast for Crows while Sandor is on the Quiet Isle, not even exists. Clearly, they're two very different um, identities. And I think it's pretty similar to Jamie's The Kingslayer, right? As far as a moniker goes. Uh, while the Hound is a nickname, obviously derives from the origins of his house, whereas Jamie's the Kingslayer derives from an action he actually committed. I don't think anyone doubts that people refer to the to Sandor as the Hound in a way that's a menacing term meant to categorize him as a cold-blooded killer who will follow his master's commands without a second thought, much to how Gregor is referred to as Tywin's mad dog. So I think they're very different things in that I would love to see if we're going to have a moment with Sandor where he refutes it. You know, he says, my name is Sandor, the same way we see Jamie say, you know, my name is Jamie, not the Kingslayer. So I I wonder if if we'll see that. Mm. I think it'd be great. And I think carrying on the the parallels with Jamie, because, uh, you know, we've actually we've something that's come up a lot today and it's probably something that's not discussed a real ton in the fandom and then there actually are a lot so as with kingslayer the hound is very much a professional identity right there it's kind of what they do not who they are uh but they're also shields that both these men hide behind to distinguish their acts as knights and soldiers or whatever uh from their personal identity the Hound is the Lannister's guard dog. Joff calls him dog, and it's, of course, in the most insulting way because it's Joffrey. Uh, the Hound is a dehumanizing moniker in the same way Kingslayer is. And like Jamie wants to be seen and spoken about as Jamie, deep down, I think that Sandor probably wants to just be Sandor, the little boy who loved knights and dreamed of becoming one. 
Excellent. The hound is a shield. We'll leave you with that thought. So that's it, guys. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. It was it was short notice. We're doing a lot of short notice uh, live streams recently, but you stepped in and you've done a great job today. Why don't you tell us about the blood of the podcast and refresh our viewers and listeners um, about this project? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as always, you know, thank you so much for for having me. I've been such a huge Radio Westeros fan for for so long. It's always a little surreal getting to hang out uh, with you, you great people. So um, at the bottom of the podcast, we are currently making these abridged versions of the Roy Detrice readings edited with background sounds, music. They've, They've been a ton of fun for me. I really enjoy them. So check them out. Um, you can find some writings I've done about the economics of Westeros on Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire. And spoiler alert, there is a new planned piece coming, or actually many pieces. I think it's going to end up being much longer than anticipated, but uh, coming at, at some point in that series. Additionally, my wife and I do remain partnered with the Cancer Research Institute, whose mission is to save more lives by fueling the discovery and development of more powerful immunotherapies to cure all types of cancer. So guys, uh, it's been it's been great. And if you'd like to donate to that, you can uh, get to it on my pinned tweet at KWDent2. Yep, and it's right down there. So yeah, uh, that is a great cause. And uh, thank you for talking about it. And thank you for being here. Again, like Yoke Boy said, <laughs> short notice, but still tons of fun. And what a great character and what a great discussion. So, uh, you know, thank you everyone for being here. Don't forget to hit like and subscribe before you leave. Join us for another live screen, live stream. I say live scream. Maybe by that time we'll be on. We'll be close to Halloween. Maybe it will be a live scream. Who knows? Uh, but it's going to be in a couple weeks' time, right here, uh, as usual. And um, yeah, thanks everyone listening and people in the chat for being here. We really appreciate you, and we appreciate you folks that are listening or watching us in the future as well. So, yeah, a, a live stream October the seventeenth. And get your candy corn out for that one because that's near Halloween, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and Lady Gwyn, why don't we talk about what's coming up next? Because we're having a little break from our Primer series. Why don't we talk about the Dance of the Dragons continued series? Yes. Go for it. We are working on uh, part three of our uh series on Dance of the Dragons with History of Westeros. Uh, work is well underway for that, and we should be seeing that. Uh, or, yeah, you'll be seeing it on History of Westeros and hearing it in your ears on Radio Westeros uh, pretty soon, uh, you know, maybe within a matter of weeks. So keep your ears peeled for that. And then following that, of course, we'll be back with another uh, installment of our Winds of Winter Primer. So there, some reasons to be excited for the You Were Song of Ice and Fire fanatics. Thanks for all your support for the live stream so far. There will be more. And a special shout out to our chat room mods who do a great job keeping things in order. Thanks, we couldn't function without you. Um, to each and every one of our patrons, thank you. You support us and that is invaluable to us. If you want to support us as a patron too, check out our Patreon campaign, which includes all manner of incentives, shout outs, early access, and so on. You can listen to episodes up to a, a week early of our 
major episodes. So check it out, guys. And cheers and thanks for tuning in. Have a great weekend. Bye for now. Hound says goodbye.